Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Take a deep breath in and out. There, now you're aware of your breathing. That ability to breathe without issues is one we mostly take for granted. Now imagine your ability to breathe has been compromised. You have an illness, and even worse, you're in a remote community with no access to electricity. So an oxygen mask is out of the question. That is, it was out of the question. Hi, I'm Associate Professor Roger Russell. I'm in the School of Physics. I am a teacher and a researcher. I'm formerly associated with the Experimental Particle Physics Group. But more recently, I run another group, and we'll find out a bit more about that in the podcast. Roger from the University of Melbourne School of Physics developed a way to produce oxygen without electricity. His work may soon help thousands in developing countries around the world. Dr Andy Horvath sat down and spoke to Roger about his work, the Free O2 Foundation he is a part of, and the intersection of physics and social equity. Roger, you're passionate about physics, but you're also passionate about social equity. You like solving industrial problems using physics. Let's talk about the physics side of Roger. Tell me about your passion for physics. When did it start? That's an easy one to answer. My passion started with curiosity. So as a young kid, I was always curious about how things work. And the best way about finding out how things work is to break them and never put them back together. So my father was always um, uh, associating me with everything being in bits and partially reassembled because the journey of finding out how things work was the excitement. And you didn't always have to put them back together, but it does pay when you can. So you always were interested in how things work and therefore you went to university. What did you study? Well, university was interesting for me because um, my, I, I came here with a migrant family and no one had been to university. And so as we grew up and I, I went to a secondary school, um, a major turning point in Australia was that during the Whitlam era, um, university became accessible. And I recall the teachers coming into us, and we must have been, it, would, it was called forms at that time. You know, that's how long ago. It's a century ago. You know, that's how long ago. And I remember them coming in and saying, okay, are you boys? Yes, I went to a boys' school, and um, you boys are going to go to university. And um, so we got excited, and apparently we had to do some work. So we started working and um, come along. I finished my year 12 and got into university. And I, and I still remember the first time coming into Melbourne University. I came with Dad and we drove all the way into town uh, from the northern suburbs and we walked into the union. And I still have this really vivid memory of walking into the student union and looking around and thinking, well, this is the university. I mean, the student union. And we picked up a copy of Farago. And That's Farag, the magazine. The magazine, the, the student, student magazine, union. Yeah. yeah. And it was very risque because it had naked men and women in the magazine, pictures. And uh, I remember Dad getting a copy of that and saying, I don't think we'll show this to Mum. 
<laughs> so that's my first recollection of the university. Now, you've never left the university. You've oh. been here all your life. Is that right? That's correct. So tell us about the turning point then from studying physics to becoming a physics researcher. It's one of those grey areas. Um, so coming here, and uh, people will now work out that I must have come here when I was only three years old because it was 40 years ago when I came here. <laughs> and I recall um, I came along and I thought, we'll do a degree. That sounded pretty good. And I was never sure whether I was in the right course because I was in science. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to be an electrical engineer, but I think my love of physics came about through in physics. I could actually also look at electronics and other aspects that might have been covered in engineering, but I was able to still pursue science for science sake. And um, so then at the end, uh, looked at should we get a job and decided to do an honours year, and that sounded pretty good. And then I thought, oh, should I get a job? And I thought, oh, why not start a PhD? I had never come to university with the prospect of, well, I'm going to do an honours year and do a PhD. I'd just come to the prospect of doing university. So that got uh, me sort of excited. And um, I love teaching, so I got a job as a demonstrator. And I think that ignited my passion for really communicating science or physics. And I don't know how it was, but I stumbled at a very young age into a tutorship and um, seemed like a good idea. And the next thing I knew, I had a job, but I didn't have a PhD. <laughs> because along the way, um, it no longer seemed important to do my PhD because I was in the university. I was doing what I loved, loved what I do, got paid to do it. I mean, there's not much more you could ask for. And um, this is not an advertisement for how to do a PhD, but it took me 12 years to finish my PhD because once you're working full time and you're doing all those other things, you don't um, seem to focus on it as much. In the meantime, I'd supervised five PhDs uh, because we were working in Japan and um, I was doing the research I wanted to do. And then I remember, um, you know, sort of somewhere in the mid-90s, I thought, well, I've got this 10 years of experience. Maybe I'd better finish that PhD. So I took six months off and finished it. What was it in? Well, I can actually tell you I have a PhD on oxygen, the nuclear structure of oxygen. And in particular, what we were looking at, um, my PhD was in nuclear physics, and um, it really focuses on the nucleus. So um, many will know the size of the atom. The atom's 10 to the minus 10 of a metre. That's very small. It's tiny. It's, what, what is it, one ten thousandth of a millionth of a metre. Now, everybody can obviously visualise that. So for those of you who can now visualise that atom and place it in a football arena, and if you're in Melbourne, the MCG, or if you're somewhere else, a big football arena, if you now call that the atom, the nucleus is like getting six jelly beans and putting them in the middle of the, that field and that's the actual nucleus and that's 10 to the minus 15 of a meter roughly you know the size thereof and in the outer seats of that arena are specks of dust and they would be the electrons and the analogy that i'm trying to paint is that an atom is mainly space so what we were studying was really what holds the nucleus together. Why do, in the case of oxygen, can we get um, sort of eight protons and eight neutrons and shove them in so close, so tightly packed, 
and it stays together. So we're looking at the structure of that and in particular what the role of the neutrons were in there. You're renowned round campus as a physics lecturer. You've got sort of cult status. People attended your classes who weren't even enrolled in your courses. Tell us some anecdotes over the years, some favourites of teaching physics. Well, I'm not sure I'm renowned, um, uh, but um, they are uh, interesting lectures. Um, I enjoy teaching. And um, this is my first year after 21 years of not teaching first year, and I'm really going cold turkey, and I'm teaching this master's course, which is great because it's one-on-one with the students and rather than classes of 200 or 300. The one thing I've loved about teaching first year is that um, it's an opportunity to introduce students to self-directed learning rather than simply teaching. And um, yes, it's a bit of a transition. Yes, it takes students a while to get used to it. But years later, you bump into them and say, look, you know, I'll look back on those lectures and they were really great. From a teaching viewpoint, in physics, the way we teach is very experiential. And of course, we can get the textbook and read it to the students. And um, in some of my lectures, actually, my first lecture, I'd normally start doing that, you know, say, look, can I take it for granted you've read the first 237 pages of this 1,500-page book? And if you haven't, make sure you go home and do it tonight and turn your books to page 238 and we'll start reading from the top left-hand corner. And get away with this for about 30 seconds or 40 right. seconds while the students look stunned. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> you're playing with them. <laughs> yeah. And then I said, oh, by the way, right at the back of the book is an index. And, you know, if you want to look up Newton's laws, go to that section. And my job is to point you to the right section of the index and explain a little bit of this, and we throw the book away. But physics is about the natural world. Yes, and maybe the subnatural and the non-natural, but at the end of the day, first-year physics is about what, how and why the world works. And so my belief is that everything should somehow be tangible and testable, And so in all of our lectures, and that's not me in isolation, we put a very heavy role on using demonstrations. Now, they are spectacular because they often go wrong. And and that's even better because there's a lot of learning that takes place. And so we've been known to have the odd explosion in a lecture. Um, we do the shattering wine glass. I don't know if you know, remember those operatic tricks, you know, where you get sure, an operatic the... singer. And so we've gone to a lot of trouble to set up technology so that we can image that and show the students and oscillate the wine glass. And the way we strobe it, you can actually see the wine glass pulsating and it moves three or four millimeters in and out. And you've got to choose the wine glass carefully to get the resonant frequency. And most times it breaks, but sometimes it doesn't. And I remember one time having the glass in my hand on camera saying to the students, it's amazing this glass, how it can squeeze it in and glass is flexible. And unfortunately, I squeezed it a touch too much, which it shattered and cut me and blood went everywhere, at which point Laura Parry walked in to give a biology lecture and there's a physics lecture with me bleeding all over the place. So that was spectacular. Explosions, blood on the hands, teaching physics. So tell us about um, the oxygen molecule. You've been very interested in healthcare and oxygen. I've become interested in healthcare. It was a turning point in 2011, so now now six, seven years ago. And 
remember the life of this young person who's now an old person. Um, I came to university, got to study physics. And when you're a physicist, you um, grow up thinking that you can solve every problem. Um, I learned very early on working with industry that we could solve 80% of every problem. It's, it takes engineers to really take those solutions and really get that to a workable solution. That's where scientists work well with engineers, but I'm not an engineer. And my research work, I was fortunate to work at places like CERN, um, the Australian Synchrotron, Stanford, and we worked in very expensive experiments. We were always very ingenious and frugal, but you know, budget was virtually no limit in the overall scheme of things. And in 2011, we were approached by some medical doctors to start looking at whether we could diagnose anemia. And we looked at some laser technology we had and digital imaging processing and whatever. And that relationship got us invited to um, what I will call a nerd fest, but it was really the No Limits Symposium held by the Nossel Institute, where Jim Black um, and other colleagues had got together all these um, global health specialists who were working in very difficult resource settings, and they presented some of the challenges they were dealing with to a team, uh, an assembled audience of engineers and scientists, and what I call nerds. And our job was to sit there and become acquainted with what their problems were and use our wisdom to solve their problems. Brilliant. So basically people who had various problems said, let's ask physicists, see if they can see something we can't. And so problems like anemia, which is where you don't have enough either blood molecules or enough oxygen in your blood, um, is a major health problem. What happened next? Well... And, and you heard the word oxygen come up. The, the good thing was that my PhD, my PhD was useless because it was a PhD on the structure of the nucleus rather than the MCG. <laughs> you know. Anyway, so um, as, as I mentioned, it was physicists and engineers, scientists. Um, may, maybe they even had some um, financiers there too because at the end of the, end of the day, money solves many problems. Um, so give me more money is normally the solution. Anyway, so... This differed because often as scientists, you have a solution and you go looking for the problem. So this was quite clever. Reach out with problems and see who has solutions. And it was a key member of my team who came away. And we were originally tasked with trying to produce electricity in remote areas to run machines to produce oxygen. For healthcare. For healthcare. For healthcare in low resource settings. And um, I'll describe a bit of that possibly later. But... um, Let's assume you need oxygen. And so, uh, like most physicists, we just assume oxygen comes from somewhere. And we thought, okay, well, you cryogenically cool air and you separate the oxygen from the nitrogen. Yeah. Oh, is that uh, how it works? Well, that's what we thought. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we we rang a few hospitals and, and they told us, oh, we've got these little machines that you plug into the wall that make oxygen. So we said, oh, could we have one? And one of the companies gave us one and we pulled it apart and had a look how it worked. And we were quite surprised. It was quite straightforward. You have a compressor like you could buy from Bunnings, you know, mm-hmm. or any hardware store, including Mitre 10. We don't want to um, promote any one hardware store. And then you have these two filters. And um, filters, and of course, uh, those in the know will know they're not filters. They're adsorbent material, you know, but they're zeolites. And by pushing air cleverly through these objects, you could separate nitrogen uh, from the air 
air is 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, 1% argon, and the rest of other things. So you, you could be left with 95% pure oxygen. All you needed was to run the compressor. Mm-hmm. So these guys wanted the electricity to run the compressor, and we said, well, hang on, don't you just want oxygen? Why don't we just make oxygen for you? So rather than make electricity to make compressed air, our team proposed we could make oxygen. Now, we proposed. How? By simply making compressed air somehow in the natural world and then using that through those filters. And did you? Well, we proposed to do it in uh, 2013, um, formally, where we got a grant and we expected it would take us six months and we would use water to do it. It took us close to five years, and yes, we have done it. Congratulations. So we, how we managed to do it was to exploit a very simple natural phenomenon. When water moves through a pipe, if that pipe goes up and down, the pressure drops at the top of the pipe. We put a hole in the top of the pipe, and it's really a siphon is what that pipe is. We created a vacuum which is an absence of pressure, and we reverse the process. So rather than use the pressure to produce the oxygen, we use the vacuum to remove the nitrogen, and so that's how Freo2 was born. Yeah. Wow. So you've created oxygen without the use of electricity, and this means remote healthcare facilities or any places without electricity have got access to oxygen for healthcare. Provided they have access to some flowing water, the answer is yes. And so we're the only group in the world, I suppose, firstly, mad enough to propose it, be silly enough or commit enough to try to do it, and now we can actually do it. And on the border between Uganda and the uh, Congo, the the DRC, we actually demonstrated and ran that system earlier this year for a small community. Now, for those of us who are not familiar with healthcare, what is oxygen used for in healthcare? Well... We're using oxygen right now, Andy, aren't we? Oh, yeah, yeah. For? Yeah, breathing. Well, that's normally what's used for in healthcare. So if you look at illnesses and um, any illness that's um, uh, where you suffer a deficiency of oxygen, uh, it's, it's called hypoxia. And pneumonia being the biggest killer of kids in the world, for instance, most people don't know that. They think it's AIDS or malaria or whatever. Pneumonia and diarrhea account for one quarter of infant mortality or of under five mortality in the world. And in fact, pneumonia kills almost a million children each year. Well, children who have pneumonia, basically their lung functions compromised. They can't breathe. They can't fight that infection because they can't get oxygen into their blood to actually fight the infection. You could try to give them antibiotics and um, say, but only 25% of pneumonia cases are bacterial. The other 75% in these areas are typically viral. Strangely, or not strangely, these children who can't breathe deeply, what if you gave them pure oxygen or medical-grade oxygen? They get a lot more oxygen into their blood. Their blood sats come back up. They fight the infection, and there's a 30 to 40% reduction in mortality just by putting them on oxygen. That's great. So all you've got to do is provide oxygen. Well, uh, it's a little different. In uh, You mentioned the MCG. You know, There's an, another... Uh, thing that we take for granted that we have access to liquid oxygen in in Victoria and in Melbourne, in Australia, in the world, you know. Well, 1.4 billion people on earth have no electricity. They don't have necessarily roads. They don't have um, wide telephones or they may have wireless telephones now. I mean, uh, but they 
don't have oxygen in their facilities. And so we have set ourselves a task of trying to provide oxygen to smaller remote health facilities that may not have energy to produce it. And we've now gone beyond just using water because when we use water, of course, everyone criticised, well, what are you going to do when there's no water? No water, yeah. And so we can now use solar and people say, what do you do when it rains? We say, well, we can use water. And um, we can use electricity and people say, well, what happens when the electricity blacks out and we can store the oxygen in these very low pressure vessels? And so the real journey of physics for me has been how can we holistically provide oxygen? So rather than focus on all the great innovations, I think the major innovation we've done now in Uganda in particular is on the wall. It's blank in most of these small hospitals. And on that wall, we've put a piece of wood and a tap. And that tap delivers oxygen. And what happens on the other side of the wall is the innovation. What we want the nursing staff to do is to go up and turn the tap on and use the oxygen. And that's our major innovation, to put the tap. That's fantastic. And to think that this went back to its origins at a nerd fest and its physicists saving lives. Well, I love hearing the term physicists. It's physicists working with epidemiologists, working with engineers, working with biologists, working with paramedics, working with medicos, working with finance specialists. It's really interdisciplinary work that's actually going to make this save lives. What would you like to activate in society, Roger? I'm putting you in charge of the country. Okay, the four I's. Four I's? Yeah, uh, see, I grew up with the three R's. Right. Reading, writing, arithmetic. Yep. Yep, right. I translated that 15 years ago when we started doing all the science outreach to the three E's, engage, enthuse, excite, and therefore educate. Now I have the four I's. Which are? An idea. Universities, curiosity, they drive ideas. But ideas are just like this little impulse delta function. Oh, I've got seven ideas today. Fantastic. They're a next, dime a dozen, yep, aren't they? that's right. Yep. Um, now, the next word is contentious because, you know, um, it, I'm not sure it's a government policy anymore, but innovate. Take the idea and innovate. Innovation's great. Burn a lot of money and a lot of time and take that idea and show it works. Make it work. The next I is implement because there's no sense innovating till the cows come home until you implement. And the last I is the I that um, is the real measure, impact. Have the impact. So in our work, our first idea started around 2011. That's when the Nerdfest was. We ran for two years with no funding, like we ran backgrounds and and notice it's we, 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 because this podcast is about me, 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 apparently, but it's really teams that actually make this thing happen. It's, it's teams that I'm part of that worked weekends, um, bought things out of their own pockets, and then in 2013, we actually get a grant from the Saving Lives of Birth from Bill and Melinda Gates, USA, Grand Challenges Canada, that group, and then we basically raise a lot of money and... On July 17th, 2018, we delivered oxygen to our first child, baby Francis. And two days later, I got to hold Francis with permission of his mum because he was fully recovered. And that's our first impact. So we went from zero on our measure of impact to one. And it's now just over a month later and we've treated more than 35 children. 
since. So we're slowly climbing that little impact ladder. We haven't stopped having ideas. We haven't stopped innovating. We're building teams around us to implement, and we're now starting to measure that impact. Roger, next time we stop and take in a big breath of air, what would you like us to think about? Well, think how lucky we are that we can breathe. Um, Think how little we know about ourselves. Um, What we learnt as physicists, um, Valda McRae, who is uh, my dear friend, you know, um, in chemistry, passed away a few years ago, was always disappointed in me, in my performance in chemistry. Um, Our entire group have had unspectacular performances in chemistry (laughs) as undergraduates. But we've had to go back and learn so much chemistry, you know, late in life. And the foundations were there, do you get me? Uh, I probably wasn't the best student at the time. I remember going and doing French rather than having to repeat chemistry because I did fail chemistry. (laughs) So, So when we look around, think how lucky we are. Do something about sharing the, the wealth and the knowledge. You know, share your knowledge. Share your time. Share your thoughts. And consider the word yes. So when somebody asks you to help, just say yes. If they can reward you, they will. If they don't reward you, you haven't lost very much. All you did was said yes and helped. Roger Rasool, Associate Professor of Physics. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Associate Professor Roger Rasool from the School of Physics, University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath. For more info on the Free02 Foundation, go to freeo2.org. That's F-R-E, the letter O, the number two, dot org. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on August 28, 2018. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Dr. Andy Horvath and Sylvie Van Wall. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this podcast, drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.